This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. It's sweet that sometimes when you teach at a place for the first time, there's like a little thawing out process that happens, but I'm not feeling that so much. I actually feel like I've been here a little bit. Yeah, so thank you. So the series I know is um, where the the rubber meets the road and and uh, I've seen the topics for a number of the talks and um, yeah, that's where the rubber meets the road. But tonight, mindfulness, dharma in relationships. This is really where the rubber meets the road. This is the last frontier of Dharma practice, right? So, um, I, I feel like um, it's not always clear what the meaning of our meditative experiences are. And different meditative traditions make sense of concentration, of samadhi, or insight in different ways. And sometimes it's hard to know how much to make of those kinds of experiences. But a, a real place for us um, to kind of check our practice in a way is in relationship and how our practice shows up in the, the relational field. Yeah. And this is so, so fundamental in our practice because um, we could say that uh, you know, the basic flavor of the Dharma um, is something like non-harming. And harm is, by definition, relational. So this is not some um, sort of casual aspect of our practice. Our our whole practice is is, um, operates in the relational field. This is uh, a worthy subject for us to reflect on, and. a source of incredible delight, and I'll speak personally, um, humility, too. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, one of my main teachers, Shinzen, has at one time, he characterized, he said there are sort of two maxims for our spiritual practice. And he said, the first was, don't fight with yourself at any level. And the second was, take feedback. And he just left it there. And um, 
that taking feedback, um, I appreciate how central he made that, a kind of relational component in our spiritual life. And um, we can learn a lot about our minds based on how we show up in relationships. When I was um, first started practicing, somehow I heard, I think it was a, a monastic say that their, their aspiration for, for their practice was to be uh, safe for others. That was a kind of organizing principle. And even though I was quite early in practice, there was something that, uh, that really cut to the bone for me to become safe for others. And so naturally we turn to the relational field in seeing how we are safe for others and how we're not. Yeah. Um, all, all of our practice is relevant. You know, the th- sort of three baskets of sila, samadhi, panya, conduct, mind training, concentration, and wisdom. So all there's a place for all of that in the relation, in w- making relationship a, a part of practice. And uh, maybe we can begin by acknowledging that we, that we are deeply relational beings, right? We're born way too early to live on our own, right? Our, you know, sometimes I've had the thought like our gestation period should be like 25 years, (laughs) right? Sorry, moms, you know, like, I know that's not not realistic, but the truth is this is our condition, yeah? And I I, um, heard this story of 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 a pediatrician and psychoanalytic thinker, Winnicott, who said uh, at a conference, he sort of started some big conference by saying, He's known as a kind of developmental theorist and started the conference by saying, there's no such thing as a baby. There's no such thing as a baby. And then went on to say, there's no such thing as a baby without their mother. That's how fundamental uh, the relational world is for us. And much later, kind of theorizing and, and empirical data around around this this um, just how deep the roots of um, connection attachment are in us. So this is psychologist um, Baumeister uh, writes. It seems fair to conclude that human beings are fundamentally and pervasively motivated by a need to belong and seem to need frequent, affectively pleasant or positive interactions with the same individuals. And these, they need these interactions to occur in a framework of long-term, stable caring and concern. So it makes sense that um, 
that this would be a very fertile garden for our practice, yeah? given how um, deeply we depend on the relational field. And even in monastic communities where there's a sort of, in some ways there's the model of leaving one's family, leaving family, yeah, uh, of going forth. But there's, there are no communities that are more deeply relational than a monastic community, yeah. And so um, the opportunity is that our deepest, the deepest grooves in our minds are evident in relationship. And sometimes they're only stimulated in relationship. And grooves, lots of positive, helpful grooves, but also the grooves of greed, hatred, and delusion. Those get stimulated in relationship. When I'm, uh, when I'm single, I feel generally pretty sane. <laughs> Maybe other people have this experience. <laughs> um, and sort of left to my own devices, I, uh, uh, without having my habits disrupted much, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I've really got it together. <laughs> and then uh, uh, being in relationship is like, whoa, I've got issues. <laughs> you know, the the forces, the the kilesas, the defilements arise in ways that they just don't in other situations. Stephen Levine said, um, the reason your family pushes your buttons is because they installed them. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe that's not a completely fair characterization, but but these, these grooves are deep and they're to be honored in a way, yeah. So, the, um, we could say the forces of, of suffering that are latent in other situations can arise in the context of, of close relationship. And I'm not just speaking about romantic relationship, but just um, deep, eff- affective bonds. And these, um, you know, these latent the the kind of classical language of latent defilement, you know, sources of um, kind of different strands of suffering um, get stimulated. And this is really, in a lot of ways, not bad news, but, uh, but actually our opportunity to, to practice, to see ourselves more clearly to become more free, to cook, cook our life, as one Zen teacher says. Yeah. Like to see those 
pieces of our mind that are sort of undigested, yeah, where we just default into suffering of one kind or another. And it's, hu- it's beautiful work and it is humbling. You know. And sometimes in the relational field, it's, um, I feel um, powerless against the force of habit. Not, not so frequently, but there are times when I feel completely propelled by habit, even though there's some clarity of mind that I know this is happening. It's like the inertia is too strong. And in those moments of uh, kind of feeling some, like just propelled by forces that are bigger than our mindfulness, These can be powerful moments of deepening our commitment to practice. To practice in a way that we don't get backed into that kind of karmic corner where the forces of craving and aversion are stronger than the mindfulness. So some some practices, And then looking a a bit at um, kind of purifying the nature of our relationships. So it it seems so mundane, but I'm I'm very inspired by the fact that Joseph Goldstein has said, um, the the, uh, insight teacher um, has said that he makes wise speech a cornerstone of his practice. And it's definitely not the sexiest aspect of the Dharma, right? You know, there are flashier kind of ways of practicing and maybe it seems mundane, but uh, it's it's helpful for me to, to hear that he makes wise speech a cornerstone of his practice, yeah. And, I, the, you know, I feel like the people that I hang around, they're, and, and myself included, pretty careful with speech. But, um, but there's w- a one friend, a teaching colleague that I have who is um, unwaveringly careful with his speech. And over the years of knowing him and in intense situations, times when it would have been very natural to devolve into, uh, you know, harsh or divisive speech. I, I just never heard him do it. And the feeling that it engenders in me, I, I sort of, it didn't even occur to me that they, they could be like this, but there's just this deep trust in him. And it's not like I was worried about him talking around about behind my back or anything, but just seeing how um, unwavering he's been is just, it inspires a kind of trust. It's that safety of, of offering, offering oneself as safe, offering safety to another. 
And so uh, some of our practice uh, is about getting really sensitive to the karmic feedback loop in wrong speech, in unskillful speech. And so sometimes it's very obvious, sometimes it's more subtle, but the the body will have a kind of, uh, it will be impacted when we deviate from our own deepest intentions. And it's like this in the whole of our ethical life, um, but also specifically in our speech. And some of what we're learning to do is to be really um, alive to that feedback loop. I asked a teacher early in my practice, like, how do you possibly be mindful while speaking? And uh, he just said, it was one of those, like, the kind of Buddhist answers we don't like that much. Keep practicing. <laughs> yeah. But I think over time, um, especially as we are less stimulated by the fluctuations of, of egoic clinging, yeah, we, um, we actually can be more, we can listen more deeply to our bodies. And Sylvia Borstein says that sometimes, sometimes she'll stop mid-sentence when she starts to deviate into uh, unwise speech. And it's actually a good practice. I've actually done that sometimes. Like I'll just, just, it's a little, there's a little shame that comes up, you know, because you're sort of like saying something, you're trying to make your point, but maybe there's some anger in it or something, but to actually just stop, like dead stop, when we become aware, like, oh, you know what? There's delusion in the view right now. I can feel it. I don't even have to finish this sentence. So speaking, uh, but then also listening, right? We all maybe know that experience where somebody comes to us and with a problem to be solved and they get very involved in the actual content of the problem. This happened and now this and then we could do this or I could do this or, you know, I can't believe that, or, you know. And we get sort of seduced into the mode of problem solving. But sometimes if we just stay really steady and listen in a very open way, that's actually all that's needed, yeah? So sometimes I have to actually trust that I like have some confidence, like, wow, the problem that's being described, I am not gonna solve that, yeah? Um, but sometimes that's not even actually the problem, yeah? 
and our capacity to listen with a mind that's very open where we're essentially meditating for the other person. And where it's like a kind of co-meditation and where we're actually helping to regulate them, uh, to support them. A very kind of beautiful gesture to offer to people. And as we, as we do this, um, and as we, we listen it's like listening with the body, like just very sensitive to the impact of the words on our bodies. Yeah. And so maybe sometimes that's the, the, the responsiveness of our body, the emotional body, the body that is sort of like moves easily with all of the environment and all of our internal environment, the emotional body, we can, we can learn so much about what's happening between the two of us by listening deeply. And even feels to me like, like the heart of intuition is that listening. We're listening to the other and we're listening to our bodies. And uh, there's possibilities, I think, of deeper layers of wisdom that arise from that kind of listening. Now, um, usually what we think of when we think about love is, is love somewhat tangled up with attachment. Not in the psychological sense, but in the the traditional Buddhist sense. That these things actually get get tangled up. And uh, some of what we're doing in, in bringing our Dharma practice to close relationship is beginning to untangle the love from the clinging. It's tricky, right? Because um, there's, there's a lot at stake in our relationships. And we depend so deeply on others and the and yet the the very nature of our existence of relationship is um, we're we're vulnerable yeah and there's nothing like some absolute security yeah. so um this is from a from a book by um Stephen Stephen Mitchell, um, psychologist, who wrote a the book is titled "Can Love Last: The Fate of Romance Over Time." And um, well, I'm, well, I'll read. Um, we learn to love in the context of the contrived and necessary safety of early childhood. 
And love seeks perpetually a kind of safety that screens out the unknown. The need to feel one knows both oneself and the other person, the need for a wholly secure attachment is powerful for children and for adults. But in human relationships, safety and predictability are difficult to come by. We endlessly strive to reestablish that illusory sense of permanence and predictability. When patients complain of lifeless relationships, it's often possible to show them how precious the deadness is to them, how it is carefully maintained and insisted upon. Love, by its very nature, is not secure. We keep wanting to make it so. So I don't want to give the, you know, sometimes we get the the sense like we're supposed to continually open to impermanence, open to impermanence, open to impermanence. And that's not always the right medicine. Yeah. But I, I do think um, some of the the suffering that arises in relationship arises as a kind of defense against the increasing risk and vulnerability of depending on another. And one of the theses of the, the, the book is that, um, is that it's relationships don't so much, uh, that, that boredom in a certain way is orchestrated to create the veneer of predictability. And that, um, that some of our problems arise out of this, he doesn't use this language at all, but for me, uh, clinging. Yeah. Clinging. And in my own, my own relationships, this arises in the form of, um, of wanting to control the views, preferences, desires of the other in a way. I'm not, not in, not in overt kind of ways, but at a, in a subtle way of trying to enforce a certain set of views and preferences of molding the other in some image of feeling um, maybe challenged by the otherness of the other. Yeah. And maybe most deeply, where what I find most disorienting is to not be able to control the suffering of loved ones. that we can do something, sometimes a lot, to serve compassion, to ease suffering. But ultimately that suffering is, is we can't govern it. And that for me is, um, 
a lot of a lot of suffering and a lot of clinging arises in the face of the the suffering of the other there's something desperate that gets triggered in in me in seeing that that is definitely not compassion so we're we're learning around uh, learning around how this how this clinging makes its way in how it gets tangled up with with love And, uh, you know, Joseph Goldstein asks for us to reflect, like, in this tangle of love, which is like giving, yeah, and clinging, which is like holding, does the clinging in any way enhance the love? Yeah. If the Dharma had... I don't like to be reductionistic about the Dharma. It's sort of like so many different aspects. And if you just march to one drumbeat, practice gets unbalanced. But if we had to take any mantra to summarize the Dharma, it would probably be let go. And so letting go in this context means, uh, f in, in my experience, it's like opening to the radical otherness of the partner, the parent, the child, the friend. And in that, there's a kind of, the gest it's a gesture of not knowing them, of opening to not knowing. Part of how we make things feel more secure is to know th them inside out. But there's some value in that, that sense. You, you, maybe you know that sense of looking at somebody. It may be it's somebody you've known for decades and you can still look at them and say, I know you and I don't know or I don't know you completely. And in that not knowing, there's a kind of openness that uh, arises. We can meet people in a different way, appreciate their otherness, yeah. even as we feel deeply connected. Now in this um, in this clinging, there's uh, familiar with the the um, you know we the Buddha said we cling to to sense pleasures, we cling to conventions, cling to views, and we cling to self view. Yeah, and at the heart of any Dharma subject is, is usually, it usually brings us back to the themes of self-clinging. And nowhere is this more apparent than in 
relationship where uh, we can get a sense of how our own kind of rigid self-definitions, all the yeses, I am this, and all the noes, I am not that, how that um, impairs our capacity to love and be open. Because we are all of a sudden protecting something. We are standing guard at the gates of self. And so our attention is directed towards bracing rather than opening. Sometimes I think about Dharma practice as um, as becoming unoffendable. And uh, that doesn't mean at all condoning, you know. It doesn't mean condoning harm or, you know, delighting in insults or something. But but uh, maybe you have a sense of like what that would mean to become unoffendable, to in a way work through all of the pressure points within the self clinging, to digest those, to let go, so that there's no longer a kind of emotional charge with any claim about the self. And maybe you can even get a sense of like the, the, um, how open that way of being would, would be. How open to another we could be. The kind of safety we could offer another. Because in that way, we wouldn't be, you know, we're always exerting a certain level of egoic pressure on others. And it it is, it's like, it feels to me like, um, I don't know anything about meteorology, but like weather systems of like high pressure, low pressure, and egoic pressure, like... And you can feel that pushing against your being. And when we don't feel that, we're actually invited to be in a different way. This is Shuangzu. he uses the the male form here. If a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his skiff, even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees a man in the boat, he will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout's not heard, he'll shout again and yet again and begin cursing. And all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he would not be shouting and not be angry. 
If you can empty your boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you or seek to harm you. So one last thing. The other side of the coin of the teachings on not-self are the teachings, we could say, of not-other. And somebody asked Ajahn Sumedho, I think it was a young monastic asking a sort of senior abbot, was going home for for a holiday break, and I think was a relatively new, you know, nun or monk, and um, and they asked, you know, they were clearly like a little freaked out about going home for the holidays, and you know, as a as a monastic and reintegrating with their family. And so the the person asked Sumedho, um, uh, "How how can I how can I do this? How can I be kind to them?" Yeah. And he said, "Don't create them. Yeah. Don't create them. You can be kind by not creating them. Meaning that um, you don't fixate." their being. You don't pin all of their actions, beliefs, preferences, views on the... You don't hang all of that on the coat hook of their self. Because that coat hook doesn't exist. I do find that uh, it's possible to love people. It's still possible to love people, even in knowing this. And it's complicated. It's definitely not resolved in my own heart. There is something that wants to love their self. that wants to feel in relationship one self to another self. But it's possible to still love even with the insight of not self, not other. And then our relationships really feel like Dharma. It's possible to still love, but it's increasingly difficult to hate. Let's just sit for a moment.
whatever feels useful, please pick up. And leave all the rest behind. Whatever goodness arises from our efforts uh, together tonight, May this be of benefit. May that goodness be a cause of less suffering, more joy in our lives, in the lives of all we encounter. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.